Hello and welcome to the Cognitive Engineering Podcast produced by Tell Me Studios for Aleph Insights. In this series of podcasts, we take a look at interesting topics and discuss what we think they tell us about analysis and decision making. I'm Fraser McGrew and I'm here with Nick Hare and Chris Ragg of Aleph Insights. And this week we're discussing the phenomenon of false memories and why they take hold. So, can you remind me, why are we, who came up with this topic? Uh, well, curiously, we actually couldn't quite remember. We were just having a debate about that. Chris reminded me um, that uh, a couple of weeks ago, he said on our group communication platform, he made the claim, which is a fairly strong claim, that he'd once been a member of the, the band D-Ream uh, alongside Brian Cox. And I thought, this is an utterly absurd suggestion. And then, and then another part of my brain said, yeah, but it's the kind of thing you wouldn't make up. And he's about the right age. And I thought, you know what? It is possible that, you know, at some point he was, he turned up with a tambourine and he was, you know, when D-Ream were forming or something and was in the band for one song. And I started thinking of how actually, yeah, I, it wouldn't, not, it wouldn't be that surprising if something like that had turned out to be true. I wouldn't, it wouldn't blow my mind. And I started and I thought, well, I'm still, you know, and eventually I said, okay, I've got to admit, I, I'm not totally sure that's false. And uh, and he then fessed up. He wasn't in D-Ream. He was, in fact, a backing dancer for Michael Jackson. No, he wasn't that either. <laughs> he's, as far as I'm aware, he's not been in any, in any kind of pop group. Um, but uh, but then it, it, I realised that actually the problem is the, 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 the idea of him being in D-Ream was, was so strong that this was in danger of becoming a, a false memory for me. It was, it was in danger of acquiring the memory that Chris was once in D-Ream. And I could imagine myself in a year's time saying... Oh, yeah, actually, I worked with this guy who uh, actually was in D-Ream and then, uh, you know, completely forgetting that I'd found out it wasn't true. Uh, and this reminded me, actually, of the fact that I, I have this problem with uh, vegetarians, which is that if I know someone has been a vegetarian once um, because they've come to my house and I've had to cook for them, uh, I, I retain that information uh, for, forever, um, long after they've ceased to be a vegetarian. And and they'll tell me, you know, oh, I'm not a vegetarian. Every time they come around, I'm like, oh, I've made you, a, I've made you a lentil curry, but I'm not a vegetarian anymore. It doesn't matter. They're a vegetarian once; they stay a vegetarian in my mind forever. So yeah, we were talking about that, and I suppose it got us thinking about um, false memories, where they come from, why why they don't go away. Okay, good intro. Um, so former member of uh, D Ream, Chris Rag. Any- well, yeah, I mean, on the on the vegetarian topic uh my own false memory is the um the false spelling of broccoli uh, i can only remember how not to spell broccoli but i can never remember how to spell it uh so i i, I think there's something very uh interesting about um the i the idea that uh sometimes you can only remember the wrong the wrong answer and once once that's ingrained it it is uh, very difficult to um, t- to replace it with with the right you know the correct the correct answer, um, and I think this has got real implications for the uh, when these false memories occur for the way people do uh, uh, use these false memories to to reach to reach decisions and they are they can be very um, they can be very powerful uh, drivers of of, of decision making. And that a lot of what we 
a lot of the way we assess how events happened is based on memory and there's a good chance a proportion of that is is false memory so i think it's it's an interesting broad yeah, it's, it's a very, a really sort of, I would say, slightly understudied. Certainly, it's not something that people are conscious of, the limitations of memory. But memory is nowhere near as good as people think it is. And there's lots of evidence that, um, you know, the, the, the way that we form memories in the first place, and when, when we're experiencing, a, experiencing an event, um, the way that that memory is formed will already take into account some interpretation and there's been lots of studies now where people have successfully implanted false memories. Um, quite apart from um, some evidence from, for example, uh, looking at the judicial system, where um, uh, quite a significant number of, um, I, I mean, hundreds of cases now uh, have been overturned. These are sometimes people who've, you know, who've been in prison for 30 years and have had, had their convictions overturned because DNA evidence has now you know, DNA technology has got to the stage where they can be definitively proved to have been innocent. And in something like three quarters of those cases in the US, uh, they were convicted on eyewitness testimony. So it's a it's a really significant thing. And, you know, most memory researchers, I think, are, of, are more or less um, of the view that memories simply cannot be relied on, you know, on, on their own. Um, but actually, you know, we still go about our daily lives uh, assuming that we that our memories are, are, are pretty faithful. And I think the vision that people have in their mind of what their memory is doing is kind of like recording a, a, a video. And, uh, and actually, we know that memory is nothing like that whatsoever. And I, th I think this has got uh, valuable lessons um, for organizations that are involved in um analysis and the use of personal testimony or, or eyewitness accounts or um, uh, you know face-to-face -face meetings and the reporting of those face-to-face -face meetings um, that there is a requirement I mean in, in the judicial system it is at least acknowledged that the witness doesn't turn up and pass judgment on the uh, you know the accused um, and so it is acknowledged that there is a requirement for a separation of the person who has observed the observer and the decider or the the assessor. Uh, and yet, in many organisations, the the person doing the observing uh, is also the person who is deciding what it is that actually actually happened. And I think that's particularly dangerous because. Um, it's very difficult, like the, the place you're making the decision and the place where the false memory exists feel like they're in, this, in the same place. And it's very difficult to separate out for, for yourself. Uh, you, you know, you are, you are very invested in what you know, to, you know for a fact to be the truth when clearly you don't know for a fact it's the truth. And yeah, that's, the, we cannot subjectively. So there's two, two things here. One is we cannot subjectively separate false memories from true ones there is simply no way of telling we we we, we know that um you know i'm i'm fully aware that uh, a significant proportion of my memories must be in some sense false ones now i've got one particular memory in mind which is pretty insignificant but i remember very clearly um before i had children and could therefore do things at weekends uh, i used to play badminton on on um, sunday mornings and I remember once uh, twisting my ankle really badly quite soon after playing, after starting playing. And I was off work for a couple of days because I couldn't walk. And I remember lying distinctly on my on the sofa of my uh, flat in Islington. Um, and one thing I remember that makes it quite distinctive is that I was, I at the time, was playing um, a, a tennis game on the PlayStation. And I, you know, it gave me a couple of days to basically brush up my, my tennis career on this game. 
Um, uh, now, uh, I've got that very clearly in my head. Now, that's quite a good little story to me. And it was only, uh, I, I think, a few months ago, and I was reflecting on it, that I realised that I, but at the time I was playing badminton, I didn't live in that flat. The very clear memory I have of exactly where I was lying, you know, what, what game I was playing, and, and why I'd acquired the injury, they cannot all be true. Um, so, you know, I know. I know where, where I've had the opportunity to corroborate false memories. So, sorry, to corroborate memories. I've, I've, I know that I've unearthed false ones. But at the same time, you know, I'm very, very attached to some of my memories. And I find it impossible to believe that they're wrong. And um, just, you know, well, on, the, on the theme of self-experimentation, uh, I ha have very clear memories of, my, of m one of my first bedrooms when I was um, still in a cot. So I was about two. Uh, very clear memory of the bedroom and a lot of people will tell you that's not possible and you're too young to, to acquire those kinds of memories so as an experiment I decided I drew, I, I, I drew a, uh, a plan of the bedroom and showed it to my mum and said is that is that a fair depiction of my bedroom and it was and it was basically more or less totally accurate so um, so you know um, uh, but but if that had turned out to be false yeah I shouldn't have been too surprised but the point is that I can't tell okay I can sure. only tell by being able to corroborate it, and most of the time we're not in that position. Right, okay. Um, well, I mean, to, to summarise, I mean, I'm not a, a brain surgeon, um, but I think the reason why is that um, memories, both false, both false and not false, the reason why they um, are retained is by continual um, remembering of the memory, and that's how it gets in, 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 um that's how it gets implanted our, in our neural pathways. That's why we remember stuff. So if the initial um, memory or the initial, initial perception is wrong, it, it kind of doesn't matter. That's why I'm not explaining this very well. No, I, think, I think this is one of the things about, uh, you know, a lot of people, um, there's, a there's, a, there's a prevailing belief in the sort of memory uh, research community that you, in, memories can be influenced by, uh, you know, having been told by other people what happened. So, yeah. you, you know, and that's, and that's very what starts to get implanted well and remembered. Yeah. yeah. So, so a story might t might change in meaning or, or a fairly confused memory um, might turn into a quite a coherent narrative. Um, and, you know, but entirely false memories can be implanted. So one of the pioneering researchers, which is Elizabeth Loftus, um, uh, did this experiment where she she got people to talk about um things that had happened to them when they were young and uh i think i think corroborated with what relatives had said and then three out of four of the people that she tried that she used real memories and and then i think in in some of them uh she completely fabricated a story and got people to talk about a time when they got lost you know she said i want you to talk about i know this didn't happen but please just tell me about the time you got lost in the shopping mall and um people you know made up a story and then a year later uh, a significant portion of those people were convinced it was actually a, a thing that had happened to them. Sure. Okay. Great. So that's a great foundation. So having established this, the the unreliability of, of memory, something that Chris said early on, which I thought was quite interesting. We were talking about the example of the of the we were talking about the example of within the judiciary. But one of the things you said is that organisations should bear this in mind that the person who's making a decision shouldn't also we should should be a separation between the person who's making a judgment and the person who. Um, has the account of what happened okay yeah. so i'm interested in taking that beyond as you were sort of inferring there taking that beyond the judicial system what other areas could this be applied to and where do we need to be wary of this so i, I think there's a particular danger with uh, um false memories which is that the person who holds them is is uh 
very emotionally attached, in, to them. emotionally attached to them exactly and so they are um, much more difficult to shift from that that position so you know I mean nowadays we we are used to seeing uh, fake news for example and having to spot fake news and we're used to the concept of people lying to us uh, but in the event that somebody is not not lying to us and not um, presenting us with materials separate from themselves that they actually genuinely believe this thing they can be very compelling and can can sway things and we you know we know the fallibility of memory um and so i i think there is there is this um need organizationally to treat personal testimony which always seems to carry value i mean i in our previous career we we uh, you know experienced this this a lot that as an analyst you would collect a wide range of of information you would have things from um, uh, uh, conversations that people had had reported to you. You would have things related to uh, news articles and what journalists had reported. And then you would have people who had met the people you were interested in in person. And in almost every occasion, you could see how their testimony would sway the decision maker more than the other forms of information they were i've i've met this person or i've i've observed this set of events i've been to this particular place and therefore i you know on a one-on-one level it's very human uh, i am more convincing than the other more remote distant pieces of, of information and yet there is clearly a a good probability that what they are telling you they may well believe but um they could be wrong wrong about and so it's it's about ensuring that you are not overly swayed by that type of information so it lends a is it the potential to lend a false authority yes uh, to testimony or witness or review okay so um nick you, you were going to come in with something there yeah no i think sorry i think the practical the kind of practical uh lesson is that we just need to be much more sceptical about not just other people's testimony, but our own. And the, the, so, you know, that, that's, that's the problem, is, is when it comes to our own, I think it's very hard. Um, Wittgenstein, this is something Wittgenstein, uh, well, he touched on these kinds of issues. Um, and uh, he, he, I think, at some point used the, used the analogy of buying, the, you know, to check what was in a newspaper, but whether or not it was true, buying a second copy of the same newspaper. And I think that's that's the problem we're in. You know, we can only ever get a second copy of our own newspaper. We just ha- there's no there's no feature of false memories which we can sort of pay attention to and therefore you know learn to strip them out. We just have to be you know constantly saying. And I, I mean, but you know, we've all haven't we all been in arguments? It must be it'll, it'll be with some kind of relative usually, um, usually a mum or something like that. You know about you know oh no, I really remember you said that, and we were on that holiday, and you did this thing, and you you sort of very distinctly remember it being totally different. You know, typically there'll be a self-serving element. You know, you, you'll remember that somebody else did a silly thing, and but uh, you know your mum will be convinced it was you. And uh, you, you know, th- there's not a kind of well, we'll agree to differ. I, I that's unbearable. You you know that you're right. You know, I, I mean, I, I can't be the only person who's. Yeah, had there's also a like real this. sense of deflation when you have it categorically proved to yourself that your false yeah. memory is indeed false you know when somebody says well look you know here's your passport or whatever and you you weren't actually there when you, th- you thought you were or you know in your case you weren't in the flat that you yeah. thought you were in um 
Uh, the thing that I, I mean, I, I've always been, uh, I, I, I don't know, I've, perhaps I've never had enough confidence or I've never paid enough attention to things, I think, to remember stuff properly. But I used to like watching Crime Watch as a kid. Uh, you know, you, I don't know why. Um, but uh, the thing that used to amaze me is that, you know, there would be a reconstruction of something, of a crime that happened three months ago. And they'd say, you know, police really want to talk to, you know, anyone who was in the area and might have seen a car driving down this road at three in the afternoon. And then they'll say, we've had a number of calls saying they saw a blue Ford Escort in the area about that. Who are these people? They can remember the makes of cars that drove past at a certain <laughs> I, time. I, I, I'm, now gonna, I'm now going to reveal something about myself, which is that one of, my, uh, one of my personal sort of daydreams is if I see something slightly suspicious, I make a mental note of, of the license plate, and then I have a fantasy going forwards about how I'm the, the key witness in solving some major major crime, Wait, and it hasn't happened yet, but that's just through lack of opportunity, presumably. Well, yeah, I mean, I've done it; must have done it, you know, tens tens of times. But one day, one day, I will be the key witness. You need to hang around in more sort of crime ridden well, areas. Yeah, perhaps, I actually yeah. did. I did. Oh, we're getting a bit off topic here, but I, I, I did actually see a. Uh, I saw a, uh, the the most exciting crime I've ever seen was a smash and grab raid. Um, and uh, a couple of blokes turned. I was in, it was night time. It was in Carkenwell. I just finished uh, playing poker, and I was waiting for a bus. And these two chaps turned up on a bike. Um, one of them jumped off with a sledgehammer, smashed his way through the shop window, clambered in, came out with a load of clothes, and they drove off. Um, but I did. I had the same thought. I thought with yourself oh, you know. in hot pursuit, right? <laughs> um, I didn't even. I was actually too scared to to call the police. Uh, because I thought, you know, I, I'm armed with a mobile phone and they've got an enormous sledgehammer. <laughs> so I didn't really want to look like I was calling the police. I mean, they were fairly nonchalant about it. But I did find myself thinking, actually, you know, what would, what would I, what, th- what details could I recall here? You know, and it, it, it's um, now, now I look back and I think actually probably I've turned, I've turned the narrative into something more coherent than was actually there. So having sort of um, brought this phenomenon to our consciousnesses, um, is there, can you think of an, you, we've thought of examples where we've misremembered something. Um, can you give me any examples, ideally from when you've been within an organisation where you've been aware of this happening, and have have sort of intervened and said, well, we'll hold on. I mean, we need to be aware that we could have a false memory of this. I mean, it's I mean, it's nice if it's a personal one, but if there's a, can you think of an organisational example? Because essentially, what we're saying, it sounds to me, is like, okay, we need to be aware that this phenomenon exists, um, but to what end? Because how do you then prevent this from happening? Well, there are, uh, unfortunately, I can't remember any specifics. But there have been several cases. I think Tony Blair was one of them who, um, you know, told us a first-hand uh, account of something that had happened to him, um, something that actually had been written uh, written about an entirely different politician, uh, which he'd read in an auto- in a biography or something. But I mean, there have been quite a few well-documented cases of public figures. I think Ronald Reagan. There's a few stories about him um, having done the same sort of thing. You know, recounted stories that actually were epi- were things that had happened in films. Um, you know, it's just very, very common, and I, I, so, I, and I think the answer is just we just have to be aware of it, and we, it just means we have to factor that urge to believe. Eyewitness testimony has to be something that we should consciously pay attention to, and um, you know, and factor out. Because it's 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 not exactly the same, but something that interests me is is, is at a more kind of cultural level. 
or sociological level um, where something becomes um, um, I'm talking about narrative here and a, a construction of a narrative which becomes true you know along the lines of you know um, history is written by the victors that's the kind of thing that interests me because I think that's something you can be aware of and, and look to be and you can modify one your behavior I mean you know, I, this, this reminds me of that quote I know this is it's known who said this but I can't bring it to mind right now but um, that you know things that appear in the press uh, are more or less mostly true other than the things about which you have first-hand personal knowledge and you realize that they're a load of rubbish you know, we've all had that experience, even if it's a local paper writing about a sports event that you've been in. But they get your name wrong and your age wrong and your class wrong and the sp spelling of the school wrong. It'll all be wrong. But we still kind of believe news stories when we read them, even though our personal experience tells us that we shouldn't. And I, and I just think this is a similar kind of situation. Yeah, and I, th I think it also... Um it also calls into question very often, you know, if organisations have uh, people in particular other other countries, for example, um, their, you know, their authority when they come back to report about what is what has happened in that country uh, is usually given much greater credence than somebody who has been studying something remotely. Uh, and we should ask our Cells, you know why that is. I, I recall the the case of um, uh, you know looking at um, Middle Eastern uh, countries and um, uh, you know an, an Arabist uh, uh, who had been in the country coming back who you know always um, uh, fairly pretentiously insisted on using you know correct pronunciation for all the town names, which is which is fine. But when you know when people say they're going to Barcelona for their holiday you you, <laughs> you you often often smirk yourself so it's a similar kind of thing and yet as I said you know uh, his recollection of those of those events was considered to be the gold standard truth and everything else was calibrated around it as opposed to saying that's that's one person's subjective recollection of a set of events and here are some others let's triangulate between them and I uh, my, um, my dad was a journalist and had plenty of stories of you know the real how the, how it works in the real world and I remember he was saying one of his one of his friends was a foreign correspondent he said that he was uh he was in um uh Beirut during the during the you know all the fighting in the 80s and um I think he he was uh you know he'd been phoned up to to give the story about what was going on he didn't have a bloody clue he's in a hotel so he just looked at the Reuters newswire and it said, you know, uh, it's a city of fear here tonight. And he just said, well, it's a city of fear here tonight, you know, and uh, and made up the story based on based on what he kind of thought was probably going on based on the other news stories that he'd read. Uh, but the fact that he was the foreign correspondent meant that, you know, he was supposed to be an authority. And actually, you know, it's interesting when you are in anywhere like a war zone or any, anywhere which is supposed to be dangerous, you, you realise that actually... These things are totally different to how you imagine. They're actually often things that look like massive war zones are really just fighting, um, you know, happening in a very small place. But of course, you know, what we see is the exciting bits. Um, I, I, th I think there's a really interesting um, sort of uh, phenomenon that's going on at the moment, which is the morphing of memory and personal uh, observation of things through social media and the the um, you know the ubiquity of of video footage of things, 
And uh, if you look at um, if you look at journalists tweeting tweeting about events, you'll see very often, you know, they've been at, just as Nick was saying, you know, they've been at one one thing out of out of a thousand. But what they mostly do then is report their colleagues whom they trust and their uh, um, representations of things they've happened or or sources that they've got in in the field that they you know that they they believe. Um, but you're almost getting now. Um, a, a sort of parallel of uh, false memories, which is the creation of false footage that then gets ingrained in the collective social media memory and and perpetuated. And I think there's an interesting interesting parallel there. There's a, there's a good example of um, uh, of a car bomb in in Baghdad and footage of a car bomb. And um, this footage has, has gone around, and then it's subsequently been debunked that that ever happened uh, by some CCTV footage uh, that shows the explosion and then a bunch of people run past and lie down by the by the vehicle uh, and you know presumably then the photos are are taken and the the footage of the event and uh, it's you know it's shown to be what it is but then there's a (laughs) an interesting sort of loop round which is that there is then a claim that the CCTV footage of the footage of the event is in itself faked and uh it's that sort of nested level of doubt uh that's occurring with social media at the moment that we ought to be applying to our own brains Um, i think to sort of bring it back to the way that we form memories you know you would think that being exposed to all this having everyone with mobile phones and dash cams would would sort of get rid of this problem that we would know what was happening that there would be no doubt as to as to what the the truth was but uh, but actually in the same way that you know our, our our own memories are formed through an act of interpretation of the world rather than as a kind of direct direct recording of it likewise it doesn't you know having all this available media doesn't doesn't seem to have made life significantly uh, more or, or doesn't seem to have made our beliefs about the world significantly easier to form and I, th- um, I, th- I think a part of that is uh, is just the inherent confirmation bias that you know if you take some of the footage of um, you know very uh, uh, some of the shootings in 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 the US people will you know people will say here's here's the footage and you would think that it would be um, it would be you know non contestable what the actual what had actually happened and yet people read the events you know seeing them themselves in different ways they in, they interpret those in different ways they see the same thing and they interpret it in uh, in in different ways and i think um you know getting back to the false memories idea uh you could, you know if you say to people um you know they've looked at uh, loading of memories and this relates to something you were talking about pre- in a previous podcast on on marketing you know what is marketing about uh well it, part of it is about preloading the formation of memory that if you say um you know uh here were two um two cars that crashed into each other here's footage of it and you say to somebody uh you know when these uh when these really fast cars smashed into each other um you know look at these really fast cars smashing into each other and then you ask somebody about their recollection of seeing the the video footage they will report fast cars smashing into each other if you say you know look at this slight bump that happened or whatever that will change people's perception of of the memory and i think um you you know a a lot of the reason why 
we develop a false memory or, or a misaligned memory is to do with what we want to believe in the first place and how we slot our observation of something into a narrative that we've already formed. But also I can imagine our, 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 our friend and colleague Peter Cocker would have something to say to this. Is we're getting to the territory of data and processing of data, it sounds like to me. Um, we need to wrap up there. I think I can guess what his view would be. Tell me. And it would echo what Chris himself um, sang when he was in the band D-Ream, which is that things can only get better. <laughs> With technology. Let's wrap up there. Um, thank you very much to Nick Hare and to Chris Ragg of Aleph Insights. I'm Fraser McGrewer. Thank you for listening. And until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.